New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Novelist and poet Mary Mackey tells us that she was possibly the only student at North Central High School in Indianapolis, Indiana, ever to be sent to the principal's office for being in illicit possession of a collection of poems by William Blake. She began writing poems when she was 11 years old and longed to leave the provinciality of Indianapolis. She's stimulated by what she was reading regarding other places in the world, but mostly she got her knowledge of things beyond her geography by her fevered dreams. As a child, she suffered from high fevers that would take her body temperature to over 105 degrees. These fevered bouts would take her into hallucinogenic states of consciousness. Later, in the jungles of Costa Rica and Brazil, she again experienced bouts of high fevers and wrote many poems regarding the places she traveled in these altered states of consciousness. Today we'll be exploring the poems that resulted from these travels of these mind-expanding states with our guest, Mary Mackey. Mary Mackey is a novelist, screenwriter, and poet. She's Professor Emeritus of English and former writer-in-residence at California State University, Sacramento. During her 20s, she lived in the rainforests of Costa Rica. Recently, she's been traveling to Brazil, incorporating her experiences in the tropical rainforests into her fiction and poetry. She's the author of many books of poetry, and her historical novels include her Earth Song series that covers the lives of the people of Neolithic Europe. Her most recent book of poetry, The Jaguars That Prowl Our Dreams, new and selected poems, 1974 through 2018, has won the prestigious 2019 Eric Hoffer Book Award. Join us for the next hour as we explore the tropical jungle that exists both outside and within with our guest, Mary Mackey. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Mary, welcome. I'm glad to be here, Justine. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you here and talking about... <laughs> 
poetry and and dreams and fevered dreams and all sorts of of mystical things. Um, I would love for you to to go back. I one thing that struck me after you got this award, mm-hmm. you were which is very prestigious. You were invited back to Harvard to yes. at a speakers. And I was struck by the idea that when you were at Harvard, two, there were two things that happened. One, you were, I guess, an undergraduate mm-hmm. when Atwood was there at Harvard, and her Handmaiden Tales really reflect. Yeah, they're set. In, they're set at Harvard and Cambridge. In fact, Harvard Yard is the site of the Eye. You know, the the um, the Secret Service. Uh, and it appears in Testaments, and it appears in The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, so it's, it was all very familiar geographically to me. And I thought it was interesting, as you were in Harvard, two things. There was one, there was only one creative writing course. There was only offered. one creative writing course, and people thought that should probably be abolished because you shouldn't really teach creative writing. It was competitive. You had to, had to submit. So I, my junior year, I submitted to it, and I was the only woman accepted uh, in my class and my, in the, well, in the whole university for the creative writing course. So it was Mary and 20 men. You know. And the <laughs> other thing is that at that time, because you were a woman, mm-hmm. you were not allowed in the Lamont Library. No, the Harvard's undergraduate library, we were banned from it. In fact, when I found my old Radcliffe handbook a little while ago, it's not even listed as a place we can go. So, no, we were not allowed in. And um, rumor had it, I don't know if it was true because I never got in there, that if women worked there, they had to go down special hallways so they couldn't be seen. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm willing to believe that. And the problem with Lamont was it had Harvard's big poetry room and poetry collection where all the readings were, which meant as a young poet, I never could hear the famous people like uh, Allen Ginsberg and, you know, Robert Frost, who read at Harvard because they read in Lamont. So no women were allowed in Lamont. And I was refused entry. And also, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was refused entry. She was not an undergraduate. She was, I think, in law school at the time. So I feel very kind of, you know, wonderful and honored that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I have something in common because she's <laughs> one of my heroes, yeah. that we were both uh, uh, prohibited from entering Lamont Library. How, how did that affect you in your writing? and in in your life well you know I would have I would have thought that I thought at the time and later that it was very detrimental because you know you come to college when you're 17 I had no mentors I had very little creative writing guiding I wasn't allowed in the library where the poetry was um, but in retrospect as I've gotten older I think it might have been one of the best things that ever happened to me because if I had been allowed to take you know had had har- mentors at Harvard if I'd been allowed to go to seminars where I was taught I was a very you know conscientious kind of goody two-shoes student I would have written poetry just like the famous male writers were writing. Instead, I write this strange, different, very original poetry that I had to invent myself from the ground up. And I think it was probably the most, the greatest gift Harvard gave me, it gave me accidentally. It reminds me of one of your poems, uh-huh. uh, Shakespeare, and it was a poem of Juliet. Yes. Because I think that this kind of is reflective a bit of what you're talking about. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's called Juliet. And this is a series of poems called um, that I was going to publish. These were written in the early 70s, There, uh, excuse me, late 60s, uh, and these were part of the... Um, 
uh, second wave women's movement. These were some of the first poems, you know, that I wrote and that became part of that movement. And these are Shakespeare's women talking back. And I was going to put out a whole book called A Threatening Letter to Shakespeare, but I, it became instead a section in the Jaguars that prowl our dreams. So this is Juliet. I was a green girl, 14 and fresh. My breasts curled so tight in my chest that they ached. Time pulled through my body like sap, and I thought love grew everywhere like milkweed. Romeo was a human swagger. We drove over the state line near the end of spring and were married by a judge in striped pajamas who loaned us a cigar band for a ring. I said, look how the dogwood is in bloom, like the lips of small children in the naked woods. And Romeo said, let's stop for a cheeseburger. I said, when I see a river, I imagine a mouth at the end that could have swallowed us both. I said, this is the beginning of a great adventure. I said, I've escaped into love and I'll never be unhappy again. But there was wax to take off the kitchen floor and diapers to wash, and Romeo snored, and I found that love grows around the heart like the bark on a tree, and we had three children, and nobody died, and you can wait forever for the balcony scene. <laughs> I love that. I mean, it, it's like, here's what happens after we live happily ever after with Prince Charming. Whatever, right. you know. This is life that comes back right. and, you know, changes our illusions and makes us see reality. Beyond Disney. Right. Beyond Disney. And, you know, the other, the other women who speak in here are Ophelia, Desdemona, Lady Macbeth, you know, they, uh, Cleopatra. And so I, I really liked having that other, the other side of the, the history of women filled in. And, right. And, yeah. and doing it in poetry. How, how does poetry differ from prose? Like when you write novels, historical novels, mm -hmm. how does that differ from... The writing, you, the process, or yes. how it feels? The how it feels. Poetry is faster. It's not faster, ultimately, because I spend a great deal of time revising. But the first draft, the thing that comes to me, it comes to me often with an image or something, and I, I write it out in longhand, and I write everything that comes into my mind, and then I do extreme amounts of cutting and revising and paring it down. But it flows from a kind of inner level that's wordless, that's images, that's an almost mystical level that, that is kind of outside of the ordinary reality. Prose is a much more logical thing. It has some of these aspects, you know, when you're thinking of plot and scenes and things. Um, but with it takes two years at least to write a novel. And a historical novel, a lot of that is, is just library research. It's like writing a doctoral dissertation. You go to the library and, you know, you, you find everything. And so it's a very sustained process. You do it over and over again. And you have to keep track of a huge amount of stuff. I mean, physically, it's like being the organizer for a big conference with people from all over. And you have to remember who they are and where they sit and everything. Oh. So, you know, that's, that's a novel writing is a, a very long long, long logical process, then you have to remember everything when you revise. And if you change something at one point, you have to go back and change everything else. A poem is a strike to the heart. You know, it's just much, much more intense and uh, less logical. And in, in receiving a poem, say something about how when we when we read it, mm -hmm. hopefully we read it out loud. I mean, I, I know for me, I read it first. Mm -hmm. I just read it just mm -hmm. on the page. And then if it strikes me, if there's something about it that, that grabs me mm -hmm. on some level, then I'll read it to myself out loud. Mm -hmm. 
That's a wonderful way to do it. And why, why, why is that? Tell us. Why is that a wonderful way to do it? Because when you read something to yourself, you hear it twice. You hear it in your mind and you hear it in your ears. And when you hear it twice, you hear it as two people in some ways. And it, it speaks to different parts of you. The mind part speaks to the inner part of you and the ear parts to speak to the outer part of you. And suddenly you have a, they come together. And for a moment in that poem, you have a unity. And a good poem, a really good poem, is the kind of thing that um, allows you to have a feeling of the inspiration of the poet. It lets you think as the poet thought or feel as the poet thought for a brief moment. Now, not all poetry is written that way. A lot of poetry, uh, particularly modern poetry, is written to be only read on the page. It's, it does things with typeface, and it's not. It's meant to be like a crossword puzzle. It's very. It's a very logical um, thing, and it plays with with words as as building blocks, like chess. That's not what my poetry does. My poetry is about imagery. It's about suggesting the wordless. It's about taking you to a a kind of a view of reality that's just a little different or maybe greatly different than what you're seeing and that I believe exists around us. But a lot of modern poetry is highly logical and academic, and I'm just not that kind of poet. Well, and that's not the kind of poetry that appeals to me. Mm-hmm. It, Nor to me. Just yeah. in my personal preference. Yeah, uh, I respect it, but I don't yeah. write it, and I don't read much of it because it doesn't, it's not the way I, you know, I, I, I'm more Blakean. I'm more, you know, more, more of the poetry of, um, of the unknown than the poetry of the known and the um, reasoned. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Mary Mackey, and she is a poet and a novelist and a screenwriter, and she is the author of this new anthology of poetry, The Jaguars That Prowl Our Dreams, New and Selected Poems, 1974 through 2018. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, marymackey.com, and she spells her name M-A-C-K-E-Y, M-A-C-K-E-Y, marymackey.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Tones. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mary Mackey, and she is the author of The Jaguars That Prowl Our Dreams. Uh, it's a book of poetry from 1974 through 2018, the winner of the Eric Hoffer Book Award. And that was that was wonderful. I mean, what a surprise. Yes. I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean how rare as, as a small, small press book. Mm-hmm 
the winner, the top of it, the like the one winner. It wasn't like <laughs> right. It wasn't just poetry books. It was the best small press book of 2019. I mean, that's what the award was for. Yeah, I, and so it, that what a what a wonderful acknowledgement. It was was really. Um, I was honored. I, I felt very happy. And also I felt that what meant most to me was that somebody saw the poetry and understood it, which mm-hmm. was really important to me. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to go back. We were talking briefly about the writing, uh, the difference mm-hmm. between writing a novel and writing poetry. But in both kinds of writing, there's something that you do a creative trance. Uh, I, I'd love for you to describe that. Right. I'd be happy to. When I was younger, um, even in my, my teens, I looked at, I read a lot of biographies of writers, and many of them had bad endings, you know, uh, um, suicide, very bad drug abuse, alcoholism. And I realized that, that they were trying to get through to their unconscious material and that they were doing it in ways that ultimately stopped them from writing. And I thought there's got to be a way to, better way to do this. And, you know, I had had very high fevers, which had allowed me to see that kind of world and the kind of thing you could get to. But I wanted to get there in a way that wouldn't destroy me and destroy my ability to write. So I started out working on a way to go into a light trance where I could move into my unconscious conscious. I could get material out of my unconscious, and then I could bring it back up and remember it. The problem with unconscious material is you can't remember it. It's like you have a dream, you wake up, it's for a moment, it's vivid in your mind, but it's not stored in your long-term memory, and so you forget it. And what I, what I figured out is how I could in a calm and peaceful and, you know, healthy way, move deeply into my unconscious, get material, and, you know, work on it and come back up with it and remember it and write it down. And this is a technique I developed. And I used all sorts of little things. I drew on self-hypnosis, theta cycles, neurophysiology. I was very influenced by Proust's remembrance of things past, um, surrealist techniques of automatic writing. I did all that. And then I, you know, I just this very light kind of trance thing where you stand, it's called liminal, you know, where you stand on the threshold between the dream world and the regular world, and you have a foot in each side, and you can participate in each way. So I want to go to that wordless space before words exist. I want the words to bubble up and to come to me, and then I want to be able to take them back to consciousness. I also want to say something, that after you come back with that, that's not a poem. What you need to do is craft it, and I'm very... You know, then you rational crafting. I use craft, all the techniques of craft, all the education I had, everything I've read, and I revise a great deal. I cut a huge amount. I've had poems that were a page long that ended up two lines, and they were the better for it. So it's not just that you're coming up with word salad. You know, you're coming up with a lot of stuff, but then you have to mold it and shape it and turn it into a work of art. Well, I know it's not, you're not talking about a meditative process. No. You're not talking about a prayer process. No. You're not talking about self-hypnosis. No. <laughs> you know, it's something else. And and you mentioned briefly about you learned some things through these fevered states. Mm-hmm. And in those fevered states, you're talking about if if the body temperature goes over 105, 
it something happens. Yeah, something happens to you. Over 105, what happens is this is the first time I first time I probably experienced this. I was six months old and nearly died. Um, I turned blue, and my father was working in a military hospital, and they had penicillin, which wasn't available to civilians. I was given penicillin, and my life was safe. So it's all gravy for me. I mean, life for me is just an extra plus. You know, I would have been an infant mortality statistic. So. The, the time I remember was when I was three and I had a very high fever. And then I started seeing things and kind of the world became very thin. Up to 105, fever is utterly miserable. You feel just as bad as you can imagine. When you start getting over 105, you start feeling, you know, toward 106, you feel better. I have run up to almost 107, which is just about as high as you can go without brain damage, assuming I don't have brain damage. <laughs> we know, we and when you get, when I get to that state, I can't speak for everybody, but when I get to that state, I feel wonderful. I feel happy. I, I crack jokes. I feel no fear of death. People are, of course, around me are, are crazy with fear because they think I'm dying. And they're, and I say, don't worry, it's going to be fine. I'm okay. You know, and have any visuals? Uh, sometimes, sometimes I do. Sometimes I've, I've, you know, I see, you know, just objects floating around, or um, I, I see the world go kind of thin, and I see. Oh, when I was a child, I saw other children, and I saw them. Uh, I saw trees in winter with golden leaves, and you know, I see things sometimes. Mostly, it's a, it's a kind of very euphoric thing, and I start talking in rhymed couplets, and I have, you know, I have witnesses. I have talked in rhymed couplets for up to four hours. And unable to stop when I have these really, really high fevers. It's very strange, but they're, they're, you know, they just go on and on. I've talked to neurophysiologists, all sorts of people about it. I mean, I don't claim I'm like some kind of prophet or, you know, seeing into the other world. But I can tell you that there's, there's something that your brain does when it gets that high that makes reality look very thin. And you see all sorts of other things that you don't see otherwise. Do you recall those couplets when you come no, out of it? No, there's no way I can yeah. recall them. No, somebody, yeah, nobody. Nobody's writing them down because they're trying to get my fever down. Yeah, you know, so nobody's yeah. nobody's writing them down. But I do often come out of of fevers, even somewhat low grade fevers now, with with poems because I get these crystallized images. I get these little images. They aren't words, and then it's like you drop a, a crystal into a super saturated solution, and the poem crystallizes out of the images. So sometimes that will happen, and so I'll write the image down, and then when I go back to it and go into a light trance state, the image will expand, and it will expand itself into words and into to a poem. You give an example in one of your writings that I, mm -hmm. I read, I think it was an essay about the creative trance state, mm -hmm. where when you were writing The Village of Bones, which mm -hmm. is part of Earth Song yeah. series of novels, you said that the, the sea goddess there was no images mm -hmm. uh, of Neolithic goddesses at that time, so you, you were making this up, and that's when you went into a trance. Right. Yeah, I, there, there actually are, are images of goddesses at that time, but this was my particular goddess who was going to rise out live from the ocean. And we don't have, you know, there was no color to it or anything. So I, and I didn't want to do a statue image. So I had made up a name for her, Amapa. And so I, not Amapa, um, what was it? Um, that's, a, that's a part of Brazil, Amona. 
Amona comes out of the ocean and walks on the water toward my heroine at the beginning of this book. It's a kind of enunciation where she's going to uh, tell her that she's going to have a baby. So I went into a light trance and I started just sort of repeating the name to myself. And then I started, these things started coming and I started seeing that she had green seaweed-like hair and she was wearing coral rings on her toes and, you know, that she had eyes that were all colors. They were the color of the sea and all eyes. And she just began sort of materializing in front of me and the images kept coming up and the words kept coming up. And then by the end of it, I had a character I could talk to. And I never write a novel until I've summoned up a character and I can talk to her. You know, now I don't think I'm channel. I don't know if I'm channeling things. I'm not making any claims of doing that. But what I do know is that if I can imagine a character well enough to talk to her, I can write a novel about her. I think this is a way of getting into the imagination, of unlocking that door that that all that stuff is in everybody's brains, but you don't have the key to the cabinet. You mentioned Amapa, and mm-hmm. and that just reminds me of another poem that really goes back to maybe this. This time in Brazil, is that right? Yes, uh-huh. And can you describe where this poem came from? Uh, this is called The Invisible Force of Amapá. Amapá is a part of Brazil that, when I wrote the poem, was 90% untouched. The rainforest was completely intact there. And um, it's, I called it invisible because it was invisible to Europeans because they hadn't matched, uh, mapped it. Obviously, indigenous people knew where it was. And it had the greatest resource of endangered species and untouched rainforest in the, Brazil, in the Amazon. And now this is the place that's being burned over. And so it's very, um, I could, it's a very short poem. I'd be happy to read it Please. If, you, if you like. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it, it was a refuge of beauty, really. And this is some, a major concern of mine. I, just, I, I did live in the jungles of Costa Rica and the Amazon, and um, I've been interested in ecological issues since 1966. So this has been a long haul. This is called The Invisible Forests of Amapá. Crested Capuchin, Nectar Bat, Three-Toed Sloth, Golden Lion Tamarin, Red-Handed Howling Monkey, Dark-throated seed-eater, blue-winged macaw, great rivers veiled in steam, 60 billion trees reaching toward a sky so green it burns like copper. So that really, um, that's where the poem, it just takes us with our breath away to, to, to see it through the eyes of someone seeing this pristine jungle, yeah, jungle that's, that's and what knowing I, it's being burned, especially now. I, I think of myself, I think of one of my, my missions or duties as a poet now at this time is to preserve as a witness the beauty of the old planet, the planet that we're losing, um, and to write it for future generations. I see a lot of my poetry as being written for future generations. I'm I'm wondering then if you can uh, share with us one of one of the poems, the fe- fever. Which which one was it? Breaking the, fe- the fever. Breaking the fever. If you yes, could, uh, because this uh, really goes back to what we were talking about these these fevered states that mm-hmm. you have experienced, right. which has happened about eight times to me. I think in my mm-hmm. life, I was trying to count them up the other day, and recently too, fairly recently. Breaking the fever. When I was young, fevers were attacked. The grown-ups would rub you with alcohol, wrap you in wet sheets, refuse you blankets, fan you, feed you aspirin, plunge your wrists in cold water. 
They knew fever had to be fought because it let children see forbidden things. At 105, I would start to hear voices soft and lulling. At 106, the faces would appear swimming around me. Stretching out their hands, they would gesture to me to join them. I was always very happy then, floating out on the warm brink of the world. The fever children would sing in high voices, liquid like silver bells. Come with us, they'd say. Come play, Mary. And they'd show me maple trees turning red and gold, long aisles of sunlight and woods that glowed and trembled. My body would start to come apart very gently, like milkweed fluff, and I'd begin to rise up toward their hands, but always at the last moment, the dark circles of the grown-ups' faces would force me back down, and their fear would pin my chest to the mattress like black crystal paperweights. They would force more aspirin on me, more ice and alcohol rubs, more wet sheets, and if that didn't work, they would lift my naked body and plunge it into a tub of cold water, ignoring my screams. Come back, they'd plead. Come back, come back. And my fever would buckle and snap like the spine of a beautiful snake crushed under a boot. Then the fever children would abandon me, and I'd be left in a world of ordinary things, light bulbs, used Kleenex, hissing radiators, thermometers. I'd see my mother's pale, terrified face, and my stuffed animals, and my brother's crib, and my precious fever would lie broken in a thousand bits, with no way to put it back together, and I could never explain how kind it had been, how foolish we were to fear it. That was Mary Mackey reading Breaking the Fever. And I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Mary Mackey, author of The Jaguars That Prowl Our Dreams, and it's a book of selected poems from 1974 to 2018. I wanted to go back to your time, I think, at Harvard, uh, when you were befriended by Professor Richard Evans Schulte's and he is known as the father of ethnobotany. And uh, that influenced you in some way. I, I love the way like you combine, you look at science and poetry. I mean, they're like trying to do the same thing. Mm-hmm, and well, Oddly enough, I'm, I, I was an English major, and, but he, he was, of course, a, a scientist. We met over a mutual interest in Charles Dickens, and he asked me to be his student assistant, and it turned out that he was the world's greatest expert on how people used plants, that's ethnobotany, but also on hallucinogens. And so I, catalog, I spent um, uh, almost a year cataloging the hallucinogens in his collection that hadn't been cataloged yet, so I learned all about them. Didn't take them because I didn't want to have to call poison control 
people at Boston and say that I'd taken a bizarre Amazonian seed and was, you know, <laughs> out of my mind. But I didn't take them, but I know a great deal about them. And I learned from reading about them also the other worlds that people saw. And I felt that this had a kind of um, affinity with the kinds of things I'd seen in fever. Not the same thing. It's a much sort of harsher thing, I think, to take um, hallucinogens. But I also learned about the uh, shamans of the upper Amazon and their vision quests and their dreams. And I found this all very interesting. And I liked the scientific kind of, you know, uh, looking at the uh, the reasons these things happen in the brain. I was always very interested in neurophysiology. And I feel that, you know, science and uh, poetry are, and all creativity come from exactly the same source, this deep inner source. I, you, you talk about at some point... Um, being in class, I don't know, you were, yeah. I think, 11 years old, something yeah. like that, and you were in a geometry class. Yes. And it just, uh, can you describe yeah. that with that aha moment Yes, you had? now that was the aha moment when I became a poet, I believe. I, it's, it's like science has always inspired me to write poetry because it looks at the natural world in beautiful, logical ways and then also in some ways looks beyond it. And what happened, I was in a geometry class and we were studying shapes and things, and I looked out the window and I saw the leaves and I realized that the leaves had had geometric forms, and I saw them falling geometrically and in, in regular waves, and that became a poem about leaves based on images of geometry. That I, was one of my first really more serious poems. I actually hadn't been writing many poems then, but that was a, the first poem I could really remember. It wasn't a great poem. I was only 11 years old, but it was an interesting concept. So you were really, you, you really somehow the two came and, together and yeah. and i think that you mentioned in in the essay that was written um either about you or that yeah. you wrote uh the play of words obtuse and congruent yes that it was like i love those words obtuse and congruent and the leaves you know yeah shapes obtuse and congruent <laughs> Floating high on the autumn air, motions precise and fluent. I still remember a little of that yeah, poem. Yeah. yeah, and I love the way that the, I love these words. I love the terminologies of science. Um, my first novel, Immersion, um, which I wrote about the jungles of Costa Rica and, and the feeling I was having of the unity between all the living things in the jungle and the beautiful forms in the jungle and the scientific background of it, um, also kind of came up of that uh, desire to use scientific vocabulary and poetic vocabulary together. I don't see any contradiction. I mean, words are our ways. Of, they're the great human art form, and they're our ways of looking at the universe. And it doesn't matter to me what field they come from. They, they have a great depth and subjectivity and a huge history, every word we speak. It's almost like you're talking about words in as music. Yes, they're very musical in a way, or music is words. Take it either way you want. You know, the great medieval cathedrals were seen as frozen music in their forms. And, you know, the, this, this idea of the logic of music, words, mysticism, uh, inspiration, poetry, this is not new. This is a, an ancient concept that I think comes with being human. I'd love for you to share with us another poem about um, jaguars and mm -hmm. when jaguars licked salt from my hands. Yes. And is, is this more of a, like a fevered sort of poem? Well, or? it's not fevered. The fevers, you know, fever appears in a lot of my poems. This doesn't necessarily appear as a fevered poem, but this is a poem of putting yourself in a kind of trance-like state and seeing how you can, like, talk about the world in ways that aren't quite ways we usually talk about it. So it's not autobiographical. Obviously, if it were autobiographical, I wouldn't have hands. Jaguars do not. They're 350-pound <laughs> beasts. They're the biggest predator in the Amazon, and they would not take kindly to being fed salt. But but it's it, it's a way of looking at the world 
from a different perspective and looking at, at, uh, at, at how dreamlike the jungle is. The jungle is, you know, nature's, one of nature's greatest art forms. It's amazing, brilliant, beautiful beyond anything human beings could have ever conceived of, living in one complete, unified, um, living being. And this is a way of kind of moving into that and then looking at the loneliness of coming out of it and coming away from it. So I, I'll read it to you. Please. When jaguars lick salt from my hands, burning jungles once spread out beneath me, carpets of flame that moved and twisted, following the silver snake of the river like an evil prophecy. I remember a hot green day when jaguars lick salt from my hands and the shamans turned my body into a bag of birds. How they pried open my mouth and stuffed me with parrots, macaws, crested eagles, fire eyes, monitas, tinamus, and cotingas, filled my lungs with feathers, stripped off my skin, and replaced it with a layer of greasy down the color of rotten mangoes. I remember how my hands became claws, my nails talons, how when I tried to speak, a thousand beaks came out of my mouth, and my tongue broke off at the tip. When they were finished, they wrapped me in a blanket of thorns and tied ropes around their ankles and climbed to the crest of a great tree. Fly, they commanded, throwing me naked and nestless into the air so hot and thick I thought at first I could swim in it. I flew forever before I hit the ground, flew like a hawk looking for prey, flew like a vulture looking for death. Now back in these lands where the leaves turn blood red and the pepper fruits fall to the ground, and everything has a golden diminishment, as if light itself is finally being observed to die. I can still feel those birds trying to beat themselves out of my skull, and I almost take flight again over that vast jungle of nightmares and hallucinations. <sighs> yeah, you really took us on a flight yes. with that poem. You, you begin the book... Not with these flights, but you begin the book in Western Kentucky. Yes, <laughs> and which is a background of yours, and mm -hmm. it was just a, just a most shocking uh, beginning. And I would love for you to to read that first poem, just very poignant and says a lot to us. I wrote this as a poem, actually as a tribute to women and generally people who are ignored, people who are poorer and, and ignored and their strength strength and their persistence and their um, the way that they carry on. And I, it's something I admire. I come from a long line of stubborn, persistent women. You know? And this is called Whenever I Feel Like Complaining. Whenever I feel like complaining, I remember my great aunt Ebby who three days before she turned 76, hand-shucked 40 acres of corn after it was beaten down by a hailstorm, standing on one leg because the other had been eaten off by a hog, which had also eaten off one of her arms, meaning she did it one-legged and one-handed in the pouring rain. <laughs> now, when I opened the book and yeah. I read that poem, I said, oh, well, that's interesting, and it must be a metaphor. But then I turn the page. <laughs> oh, shall I go on? <laughs> Please, I turn the page. So you're, you're going to have to share a couple of more okay. poems in this uh, part of the book. You know, this, the title of this next poem is Et, which is spelled E-T, Et. Dialectical past tense and past participle of eat. Middle English etten, from Old English eten, akin to Old High German essen, to eat. Latin edere, Greek edmini. Your great Aunt Ebby has suffered a farm accident, my mother says. What she means, my father says, is a hog at your Aunt Ebby. 
At all of her, I ask? No, just her left leg and part of her right arm. Think she'll live? I expect so. Those Walker girls are tough. John, my mother screams, how can you stand there and talk about this to Mary as if it's normal? <laughs> you so were, that was like shocking. I remember, <laughs> oh, wait, this really happened. This is not a metaphor. Yeah. yeah. And, and, then, and, and then you go on yeah. with the next one. And poem. you will notice, by the way, that um, as I ta- read these poems, I'm bilingual in Yankee and Southern because yes. I spent my summers on this farm. While listening to Pincus Zuckerman play Mozart. Couldn't you at least have said eaten, my mother whispers. You're a doctor, a well-educated man. No one ever says someone was eaten by hogs, my father whispers. They're eat. It's the only possible word. I cannot, whispers my mother, turning pale, cannot stand for, cannot bear to. My mother never finished that sentence, so we never knew if it was the grammar or the hogs that bothered her the most. <laughs> That's so great. That's so great. And then there was... Was it the the last Walker that the last Walker girls? Uh, yeah, the last Walker girls. That's right at the at the end. When the last and the family down in Kentucky is is Walker here. When the last Walker girl died, when the last Walker girl died and was put in the family graveyard, the Colbys finally got our farm. They tore down the house, they tore down the chicken coops, they tore down the barn and the shed and the smokehouse where the hams had been smoked and taken down to New Orleans on flatboats. They pulled up the stones that had the names of the uncles who had drowned in the Colorado gold rush carved on them, chopped down the orchard, took a bush hog to the blackberry vines. The Colbys planted corn, long, green, rows, greener where our hogs had wallowed, greener where our chickens had scratched. Corn, corn, as far as you could see, rows and rows of it rolling over those Kentucky hills, right down to the bottomlands where the Ohio brought them the topsoil it had stolen from the Yankees. We never did find out what happened to Uncle Wid's mules. Wow. You know, I, th- this is like you're really writing about a time in rural America mm-hmm. that, that is really kind of pa- right. is passing. And I think Wendell Berry, who lives yeah. in Kentucky, also— Still does, and I know him very and, well, yeah. <laughs> and he's written poetry yeah. about this. And he was kind enough to say he liked these poems in this, yeah. In this volume. Yeah. But, yeah, it was—you know, it's, it's, it's a way of life. It's, a, it's part of my preservation thing, preserving the jungle, preserving ways of life, letting people see what it's like. And this, of course, when I look at the family farm, and what happened to it, you're going from organic family forming to industrial agriculture. And I saw it happen. I mean, I saw it tear down and I saw what happened to it. And I saw the transformation. There's one other poem that I really identify. It's called Ken. Yes. (laughs) And I really identified with this with my own Southern roots. Uh Uh, Yeah. And this is also anybody who's ever lived in a small town. But it's really Southern. And I'm going to do that. I'll I'll go into the uh, Kentucky here. Ken. We were related to everybody in Hamilton County, literally everybody, judges and lawyers and county clerks and barbers and druggists and soda jerks and moonshiners and farmers and ferry boat captains and the rich people in the big white houses and the poor ones down by the slough. Total strangers would come up to you as soon as you saw you on the street, throw their arms around you and say, my great grandma's buried next to your great grandma, or I'm your cousin seven times removed on your third uncle's side, or my, 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 you look just like your daddy. Has he ever got out of prison? (laughs) (laughs) Everybody knows everyone. I want to remind our listeners that I'm I'm here just being delighted with uh, the work and the conversation 
with Mary Mackey. And her most recent book is called The Jaguars That Prowl Our Dreams, New and Selected Poems, 1974 to 2018. And if you want to know more about her work, go to her website, marymackey.com. She spells her last name, M-A-C-K-E-Y, marymackey.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with poet and novelist and screenwriter Mary Mackey, and her most recent book is The Jaguars That Prowl Our Dreams, New and Selected Poems, 1974 through 2018. And Mary, now I'm going to switch. We've just come from the first of the book. I'm going to go to the end of the book, and there's this this one poem that kind of brings that early, early rural Kentucky together mm-hmm. with the the Brazilian rainforest. And um, so can you introduce this poem for us? Yeah, it's called Jacob's Ladder, um, which is obviously a biblical reference. And uh, a lot of the poems that I have in Brazil, Portuguese is the main language of Brazil. And some of my Brazilian poems, I've put Portuguese in them as a kind of chant. And if you understand Portuguese, you get it. And if you don't, it doesn't matter because it's translated in the next line. But I use Portuguese because I think of the beauty of words. You know, once again, my affection to words and their weaving in. And so this is a poem that speaks about the Portuguese. This has some Portuguese in it, and then it also has some of the Kentucky in it. And um, it does, it brings the whole book together as a kind of unity, and it's the last poem in the book. And it's called Jacob's Ladder. My great aunts, hair done up in braids, calico feed sack dresses, aprons full of chicken feed, knew absolute silence, breath of a candle, hiss of a coal oil lamp, the cackle of a laying hymn. But what would they have said if I'd spoken to them in Portuguese? Queridas chias, dearest aunts, the jungle is thicker than corn, mais grosso do que o milho, greener than cucumbers, mais verde do que pepinos, filled with black lagoons that shine like obsidian. Queridas chias, dearest aunts, sooner or later, mais cedo ou mais tarde. We all stand at the foot of a ladder that's missing rungs, Speaking in tongues, no one can understand. So there you really bring them together in mm-hmm. some way, and then you leave us And then, you know, with you, that. the elegaic sort of, you know, 
ending there, the foot of a ladder that's missing rungs. When, when people die, the ladder misses rungs, you know, you no longer can. Those are the kinds of poems for me that just, I pause, I read them again, I pause, I read them again, and then I, for myself, if I'm lucky and take the time, uh, or choose to take mm-hmm. the time and just let it sit with me mm-hmm. and let it work on me in this kind of sub-languaged way. Yeah, I try. Everything I write is layered so that you get one thing on it, but then it goes, there are other layers under it, and that it should reward you with repeated readings if you want to read it over again. And then, of course, when I revise and when I do it, I sit with them, and I read them over and over. Everything I have ever written has been read out loud, including every word of all 14 novels that I have written. (laughs) I read everything out loud, a trick I picked up from Flaubert, and I really like it a lot. And I used to teach creative writing with a lot of having students read out loud because it's a very good way to... Uh, understand what you're doing in a more complex way. You know, I, that's something that I do, too. I, I try and read something out loud, even even when I'm writing a fundraising <laughs> letter, which I have to do frequently uh, to, to support this work. And I'll, I'll read it out loud and listen to the flow of it and mm-hmm. listen to the words and try and really say, is this really saying what I want to say? Yeah. Is this conveying what I'm feeling? Mm-hmm. What uh, my sincere, is it authentic? Is yeah. It- and also, you know, for poetry, but also in prose, I'm interested in the rhythms of my sentences. I'm interested in how they go together. I want a smoothness and a feeling of, of ease and a feeling that it just flowed out of my head that way. But, of course, it didn't. <laughs> yes, yes. So let's talk about that writing process. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell us about your process of writing. I write um, all of my novels on a computer. Uh, with, with a lot of research, uh, and um, I write about uh, from about oh you know uh, nine in the morning till about two in the afternoon, about five days a week, um, depending on what I'm having to do otherwise. And I've done this for many years. Um, and some, and I think you turn off your phones. No, and I stuff turn off my phones. I turn off everything. I put a door a sign on my door that says writing, you know, so I'm not to be disturbed. And I just I go into that very centered, almost meditative space of writing um, for my novels. Uh, and sometimes in my novels, when I'm working out plots, I'll do light trancing to work out the plots. And then I always stop when I'm in a good place in a novel so that I can come back the next day and not feel, you know, like I can't get started again. So I'll stop. And then I always start every morning with revision. And I'll revise what I'm writing and put it together. Um, with the poems, it's a different process. It's not ex- completely different, but I write them and always write them first version in longhand. I never touch a computer because I feel the f- computer gets in the way of centering on what's happening with the poem. I'll write it out in longhand in, in cursive. Um, I'll write a couple of versions in cursive till I get one that I like pretty well. Then I'll put it on a computer and then I'll start revising it on the computer. I'd say my poems go through a minimum of about 12 revisions every poem. Uh, I let them sit a while and come back to them. Um, I'm very careful. Every piece of punctuation, every word, every line break has been thought out. Um, I believe in spontaneously looking at your inspiration, but then I believe in in making this something for other people to read and something that's a, a work. I, tr- I strive for beauty in my poetry as well as um, depth. What would you say if, like, if people decide, okay, I'm going to give myself a writing process and I'm going to commit to how many days a week mm-hmm. and this many hours and sit down, 
And what if we sit down and nothing comes? Oh, I love that. I love to be asked that question because that's probably the most common question students ask you and something I've asked myself a lot. So what I do if nothing comes is you, I have two choices. I can sit there and I can write on what I'm working on or write a poem or something. I can write about why I can't write. And I have to write about why I can't write. And I tell you, if you write about why you can't write for you know, three hours, you'll start writing something else out of sheer boredom. Something will happen to you. There's a breakthrough. And a lot of times you have to kind of get all the other stuff out before you can get to what you're actually going to. And when I was teaching in my office, I had a row of my published books, which is 14 novels and eight collections of poetry. They were there. But above them were manila envelopes full of why I can't write. And I had a stack equally bigger, a bigger stack of why I couldn't write. And I used to say, you know, it's don't, this is not the end of the, if you can't write, it doesn't mean you can't write. It means you need to be writing even if you can't write. And so, you know, you're just not allowed up. You're just, you're just sort of committed to it and you can't get away from it. And, you know, you'll have two choices. You can either work on something that's fun or you can write about why you can't write. So you're saying just keep writing. Just sit down there and keep writing. And, you know, you can write, I can't write. I don't know why I'm doing this. This is idiotic. Why did she tell me I have to do this? I'm not going to do this. I'm in rebellion against this. I know I can't write. I'll never be able to write. I'm not good as a writer. You just write all this stuff. And sooner or later, there'll be a little crack in your consciousness and it'll come there. The other thing you have to do at the same time, however, is not show it to anybody. It's very important that you write without fear of criticism. To have a critic on your shoulder is to be paralyzed. It's the most common block. You don't want to give this stuff particularly to anybody you're emotionally close to, like a partner or a relative, and you mostly don't want anybody to see it. My, I've dedicated all, all my recent books to my husband, and he doesn't see them until they're published. Because, you know, it's the criticism... Uh, early on in work can destroy the energy that's making the work happen. And most people, everybody writes bad rough drafts. Every single famous writer, or not famous writer, but who's a good writer. But uh, And most people don't see anything but the published version. So you have to understand that until it's published, you can do anything you want with it. Anything can be fixed. Woodry, you've been publishing for a long time now, mm-hmm. quite, a, quite a few decades. Yes. How do you see publishing as changed? What advice do you have for people it's these days? It's changed tremendously. Some ways bad, some ways good. In, in the good way, uh, more people can publish their own books and get books out there. Um, and there's not such a, you know, it used to be there were like oh, about 10 big publishing houses, and you either got published by them or you didn't get published, period. Uh, and so that has changed. However, the downside of, of losing that and having that, there are two big downsides. One is that there's no supervision. There's no guidance. There are no gates. So people are putting out work that's not very good in books that look like regular books, and then people buy them, and they don't want to buy, not only don't want to buy more of them, they don't want to buy books. You know, they they, they, they have a problem with that. Um, the other thing is that um, you can't, even no matter how good your book is, there's so much cyber clutter right now that it's impossible to get through the cyber clutter and find books you like. The major rev- papers no longer have, most of them no longer have regular reviewers. They're using stringers if they're using that. The papers are being um, 
inundated, you know, overcome by competition from websites where people review books and you don't know who these people are. These are anonymous reviews. They could be lovers of these people. They could be enemies. They could be paid and they have been to review. So if you see great reviews on a book, you have no idea if they're real. So the authenticity, the truth of what's being said has been greatly diluted about books. So that's very bad. The worst thing, however, for a writer is that now you're expected to do your own publicity. Most writers in the past like to be quietly go away and write, and then if you got a book published, you had a publicity agent, they might send you on a tour, they would publicize your book. Now, if you wish to continue to be published as a writer, you must do your own social media. This takes a huge amount of time away from writing. It eats the brain. It's very, very difficult for writers to do this, and there's so many people out there saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, that once again, the cyber clutter gets in the way of good writing. Even famous writers now must do a lot of publicity. There's some people who are rich enough to pay other people to do it for them, but that's the exception. And it's it's also making it hard for uh, good writing to get published. It's so true. All all that you're saying, and me as a recipient mm-hmm. of of those books and writing and right. PR campaigns, and mm-hmm. for me to kind of sort through it, and then once in a while. There is a gem, and that's a gem that shows up once in a while with all the dross that also yeah. comes. But I, I, we've got to end this conversation. We've run <laughs> out of time. I just want to thank you so much for being with us, Mary. Thank you for having me here. It's been a great pleasure. It's been my pleasure as well. If you want to know more about Mary Mackey and her work, you can go to her website, marymackey.com, and she spells her last name M A C K. E-Y, MaryMackey.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. Okay, oh, this is program number 3695. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore new dimensions.